Welcome to the FT Advisor In Focus podcast. Today we're going to be looking at investment suitability and whether we're all vulnerable investors now. The Financial Conduct Authority is keen to make sure financial services companies are treating customers fairly and paying mind to whether the client is potentially vulnerable. But has COVID made us all fall into this category at some level? Uh, this is just not a relevant question at the time for initial consultations with your clients, but also affects their ongoing investment needs. Are the investments uh, that we chose three years ago still suitable for us today? Are they going to be suitable three, five, seven years uh, down the line? And how does one best assess investment suitability when it comes to advising people who may be in a vulnerable position right now or maybe think that they could be in one in a couple of years' time? Here to talk to me, Simone Kuriaku, Senior Editor of FT Advisor, are three experts from the financial services world. We have Serena van der Merlen, Director of van der Merlen Associates, Mark Polson, Principal and Founder of the Langcat Consultancy, and Myron Jobson, Personal Finance Campaigner for Interactive Investor. Welcome all. So, Myron, I'm going to start with you, if I may. How have investors been behaving post-COVID? Have they been running for caution, maybe piling into cash and gold? It's been interesting on interactive investor. You know, while we can't generalize on, on about our customers, they do tend to be buy and hold investors. So they focus on the long term, kind of get rich, slow wealth creation. But having said that, there are always those customers who are active and enthusiastic traders. So last year we saw a record number of customer trades. You know, we broke, we smashed our record on many day last year. Um, and this basically shows that our customers seemingly sought to profit from what they perceived as market inefficiencies. And we've also seen heavy trading this year too. So cash holdings remain small, but not an insignificant portion of our customers' holdings. So it represents around 9% of their average II customer portfolios. But interestingly, direct equities accounts for just over 40%. So it goes to show that our customers are still investing and you know, they're trying to um, take advantage of perceived market inefficiencies. Mm. Serena, what about your clients? Have they been trying to take advantage of market inefficiencies? Have they been making trades or are they a little bit more nervous? I was actually surprised by the lack of nervousness, to be honest, because the world felt nervous. So we've all worked through recessions. I've been in this job you know, close to 24 years. So we've seen our fair share of heavy movements up and down. But this time felt totally different because there was obviously the health aspect as well. So I thought perhaps some of my newer investors particularly would be more nervous. But the main issue seemed to be about health and the world rather than their investments. So mm. actually see a big difference to what you would expect in a normal downturn. Hmm. That's interesting. Mark, how have the sort of institutional uh, guys been faring? Have the platform seen big sort of shifts into sort of more cautious investments? Uh, have the institutional guys been piling money into cash or cash-like equities? No, I don't think so. I, th I think, you know, as far as the world of advisors and planners goes, clients are doing what they're meant to do, which is exactly what they're told. Um, and it's a mark of the strength of the advisor-client relationship that almost every advisor I've spoken to in the last eight or nine months, and there's been a lot of them because we've we spent a lot of time talking to firms about what they're seeing, has said pretty much what Serena said there, which is occasional wobbles here and there, which is entirely understandable. 
but stock markets have kind of held up for those that are even interested and for planners that are uh, really into the idea that of their clients should be coached not to worry about day-to-day movements, let alone intraday movements. It's just business as usual, and they would spend much more time talking to their clients about the situation with their family and when are we going to get out of this and those softer kind of conversations, which in the industry, you know, my bit, as opposed to the profession, which is Serena's bit, in the industry, we would think, well, that's the kind of softer, nicey stuff, and soon we'll get to the real stuff with the investment bit. But of course, for the clients, that bit is the real bit. That's the bit that matters most. And that's why they need the support of, of people like Serena. And of course, there are people who want to day trade and want to do exciting things. And that's like a hobby. Uh, it's awesome. But the get rich slow thing that Myron talks about is there as well. For institutional investors, we're hearing that there have been some tweaks along the way as people try to position themselves for three to five years and recoveries, trying to work out what will happen with the interest rates. But it's not radically different yet for anybody. I think probably at the point that chancellors and and treasury secretaries start to think about how will we pay back the deficits that we're generating at the moment, something will have to happen, but it's too early yet to know. You talk about treasuries and uh, the the treasury and the the government. Um, Obviously, they've been giving people sort of tax breaks and incentives and uh, paying uh, paying furlough schemes, trying to encourage people to to spend uh, and help the economy get out of a mess. But it seems so far that people aren't really spending. They are saving. Have we become a, a nation of savers, perhaps, Mark? I don't know. I've got a room full of guitars downstairs that says otherwise. Um, but probably we have all seen that the frictional spend that's involved in going to work and going to the pub and doing, well, I've got young kids, so don't do a lot of that anymore. But, you know, that just day to day stuff, we are not missing spending that money. But I imagine that when we get back into workplaces, that steps up pretty fast. So it, it takes a lot to change a, a cohort of millions of people in their behaviours. And it's almost just like things have been cryogenically frozen for a little while. So the mean reversion that we see once you know we get out of this and, and have all had a shot in the arm or whatever it is, I suspect we'll see a, an explosion of fun and expensive <laughs> sandwiches from Pret-a-Manger or whatever, and then things will settle down not a million miles to where they were before. I hope so. What about uh, your clients, Serena? Have they been putting a bit more money away? I would say the opposite, to be honest, because a lot of them have been bored at home, uh, not going on holidays, which I actively encourage as an advisor. Uh, not this year, obviously. <laughs> say no more. So what I'm seeing is more spending with house improvements. I honestly wish I had individual shares in kitchen companies and driveways at the moment because that's <laughs> every other conversation I have. Um, a lot of clients wanting to give money to children at the minute, particularly because it's their children who've been struggling more with work, childcare, etc. So I'm seeing a lot of the conversations that we've had before five, six, seven years ago, where they're saying, in a few years, I'll give my kids some money or whatever. They're already now saying, actually, I want to do it now. I don't want to wait another few years. I want them to be able to change the house. I want them to be able to have their own car rather than have a car between a couple. A lot of things for the families to improve safety. 
So perhaps where their child used public transport to get to work, if they're a nurse or something, they, the parents have wanted to buy them a car if they could, you know, that kind of thing. So not frivolous spending, but very much spending on the family, which are huge amounts of spending I've seen on that. And that's What's acknowledging that sort of vulnerability, though, isn't it, Serena, that, that sort of personal feeling of safety and wanting to keep your family safe. This is what people save their money for, isn't it? Yeah. Um, perhaps instead of waiting until the children receive an inheritance, they're trying to do this now. Absolutely. And I mean, personally, I've bought a new greenhouse and a new shed. And I would say the majority of my clients have done similar things because we're all at home more appreciating home lives. So not the travel, not the spending. A lot of them are planning big holidays in the next year or two, though. Huge Good. holidays. And bizarrely, Good. lots of cruises. I didn't expect cruises to still be so popular, <laughs> but they're all wanting to do a cruise as far as I'm aware. Uh, so oh, that'll yeah, help the saga share price. <laughs> I think there's going to be a large amount of holidays next year with the over 60s. Excellent. Myron, what about your guys? Any sort of behavioural trends that might indicate a further towards saving or a further towards spending? Oh, definitely like um, a further towards savings, more more investing, actually. You know, one thing I can say is last year, around 35% of transfers into Interactive Investor ISA came from cash ISAs. So that was in last year. And that compared to 25% um, for the year before. So it just goes to show that I think a lot of people have now found time to actually get invested in a lot of beginner investors who thought, you know what, my, my mate told me this thing, investment, yeah, I, I can make some money with that. Let me actually do do it now, now that I have time. And I suppose it makes sense in low interest rates environment, you know, more people are looking at investments to basically get more bang for their, their buck, really. And we're all working from home now, Myron, and we've got access to all sorts of technology perhaps and um, maybe a little bit more time than we had before especially for younger people without kids so that's uh, that's most of us in this call <laughs> don't have the time but um, now people perhaps are thinking I can look at my investments a bit more I can take a little bit more time with, with my ISA do, do you think perhaps that there's there's an element of this kind of the enforced lockdown has been a good time for people to take stock Yes, most certainly. I think it's also uh, been a time where people can just like really sit down and read what's out there because there are plenty of guidance material available, even in the you know financial press. There's plenty of um, guidance available. And I think people have finally just sat down, read and actually took that step forward and actually do. Um, and I think that's something that's hindered people um, in the past because this life was very busy, be it work, out, outdoor entertainment. But now that's all of a sudden vanished unfortunately but it's good it's good I think difficulty now is making sure that people invest correctly not just you know invest in speculative shares you know just take their time with it slow and steady and remember that investment is for the long term. Yeah you make a really good point there Myron about investment risk and not sort of jumping onto the speculation bandwagon. We've all sort of heard that the recent news about GameStop and the activist redditors there are kids on tiktok talking about bitcoin investments it's good to take investment risk because we need to 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 make money over the long term but these are these are risks that perhaps people shouldn't be be taking aren't there i mean how how do we sort of get over this kind of i don't know is it a populist this is sort of populist activist investor movement it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is, it, yeah, it is populist, and it's it's newsworthy. It, you, everyone's seen it everywhere. 
people just really need to consider their own financial situations. I think with social media sites, you, you have influencers saying, oh, yeah, I've made money very quickly by doing X, Y, Z. But no one reports when they've lost money. You know, you don't see anyone that's gone social media and say, oh, I've lost this amount of money, you know. And I think people just really need to um, consider that and just really think about their own risk profile. How much can you afford to lose? You know, are you a, a risk taker? Some people might not even understand, you know, what risk is. You know, you might think that they're a high risk um, individual, but when it comes down to it, they might think, actually, I can't afford to lose X amount because I might need that money to, I don't know, pay my kids' school fees in a couple of years' time, for example. So, you know, I think the guidance is just really take stock and understand the type of investor you are rather than trying to follow other people. Because mm-hmm. that is a sort of measure of vulnerability, isn't it, Serena, when you are sort of sitting at home, you're isolated, and you see all these sort of people living a, a wonderful lifestyle on TikTok or Instagram, and they're saying they've invested in this and invested in that. I mean, it, hopefully your clients are, as Mark said earlier, sort of the, they're good clients, they do what they're told. Um, but do you ever sort of have to have sort of difficult conversations about risk and about um, exactly what a risk profile is and how people need to get something that's suitable? To be honest, it's part of every conversation. So I've never come across anyone who's been swayed by something on Instagram or TikTok. It's it's just not happened. Uh, maybe John down the pub might have suggested something. That's often <laughs> what I hear quite a bit. Uh, but generally, it, it's a very brief, oh, my mate said he's done this. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's have a look at what he's got. And then when they look at it, actually, John down the pub has lost 20%. <laughs> when the clients mm-hmm. lost it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It is Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it's a really useful conversation, but I would say 99.9% of the time, actually, they're not really interested in what John Dow the pubs really said. They're just wanting to know if it is something that they're missing. Mm-hmm. And when we look at more depth, it's, it's generally not appropriate. Sometimes they read something in the press that might influence the conversation absolutely great you know the more conversations about these things the better but no influences in that form not at all but capacity for loss has always been important it's been important for a long time but I think this year will just prove why that's so important um, Mm. because that's every discussion with every client and also liquid funds for emergencies, obviously, this just highlights why that that's always there. And, you know, these things, people have had these discussions for years, but until they've actually had to live in perhaps job uncertainty or health uncertainty with no warning, they then don't realise. I've had a couple of clients say, send me a message actually saying, okay, yes, I get it now. You told me so and said it very kindly. But because I nag to make sure we discuss all these things, sometimes clients can roll their eyes and like, oh, here we go again. She wants to talk about my risk. But we have to. We have to do it for ourselves in our own investments and we have to do it for our clients. And it may seem really tedious, but years like this prove why we have to do it. That's right, because you might not feel vulnerable or you might not have felt vulnerable in 2019 2020 comes along and maybe you or a family member has lost their job or could be at risk of redundancy. These things need to be factored into any sort of investment plan, don't they? Yeah. I mean, in my family situation, my parents 
lost their business with absolutely no warning many years ago. And I use that as my benchmark that you would never in a million years think my parents could have suddenly been pushed into poverty within a few minutes. And so I know I'm often overly cautious checking every situation for clients, but that's the reason because I've lived through it. And unfortunately, after this year, a lot more people have lived through it and very quickly because firms have suddenly shut with no previous warning. And I think as advisors, it's no bad thing to always assume the worst. You, ha- As you mm. say, that you can't be overly cautious because then that can disadvantage a client another way. But I think we have to prepare for every eventuality. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, I can tell that you're, you're nodding uh, along there. Is that something that you're seeing from your conversations with advisors and managers? Yeah, it's, um, it's about definitions of vulnerability. And, and I had a really, really interesting conversation with another planner very recently where we talked about vulnerable clients and everybody's mind was going to highly vulnerable people who have um, some kind of impairment of, of one form or another. And we were talking about lasting powers of attorney and how many conversations they were starting to have about those uh, where clients had maybe always said, oh, I'll get around to it, I'll sort it out, despite being bashed over the head by Serena and her years <laughs> uh, <laughs> to get it done. And it kind of hadn't. So we were talking about that. And then we got on to vulnerability in terms of being exposed to the kinds of things we're talking about here. And it made me think of Taleb's, so Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. And it's it's not vulnerability in terms of I can get taken advantage of it to me uh, the word the best word for it is his which is fragility how Mm. fragile am I and maybe the most important thing in this kind of world that that planners do and you know people that don't or, or can't afford to use the services of a planner maybe do it themselves on interactive or wherever is to bolster themselves so they are anti-fragile to so that when these kinds of things happen you're not in a difficult situation and and an anti-fragile talent goes through uh really really interesting case studies of people who would think that they have made themselves anti-fragile they're going to be okay so something like a taxi driver or whatever else it may be but what if what if this happens the global pandemic what if this black swan event happens and the streets are like 28 days later and there's nothing there everybody's got a breaking point at which the fragility comes in and the point is just to try and push that as far out as you can my contention would be it's really really hard to do that for yourself it's hard Mm. to think critically about yourself i think you need someone to kick your ass Um, i think covid has kind of kicked our ass though hasn't it mark it's it's kind of hopefully shaped and um, knocked quite a lot of people into uh, some semblance of I am not able to be in control of my situation, so I need to sort of control what I can, and I can control my spending, and I can control my other situations. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment, Mark? Probably. Um, <clears throat> I, I guess it's different for people at different stages of their life and, and what their optionality is. If you're fortunate enough to have assets uh, and a good level of income, and if you're very fortunate and that's sustained through the last year, and in our sector, you know whether we're you know doing direct work with clients or we're working with investments or whatever it is we're doing, we're incredibly lucky, right? Uh, we're not in the hospitality industry, we're not in in travel or or whatever it might be retail. So we look at this from a position of privilege, but I think if we've got options, that starts to get a little bit dizzying because we can 
start to make suboptimal decisions and we've got enough there that actually someone like Serena can do the work. You've got tools to work with. There are people at the other end who hopefully are saying, well, hang on here. Actually, it's better for me just to hang back and we'll pop down little rather than ordering in the meal box for these reasons. And that will just be the start of a pattern. So it's 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 far from far from universal, but it, it feels like without becoming a nation of savers suddenly that maybe we just start to think about this. But people are have an optimism bias, don't they? They they, yeah. they often think the best um, and don't plan, uh, which is why all these kind of conversations are so important. Well, at the worst, that could be called the British idea of exceptionalism. Uh, and at the best, it could just be called sort of individual optimism. You know, we want to hope that things are going to look better. We all hope that 2021 would be better. It would be the year where there were no lockdowns. We could all go back to the pub and start talking to Dave about his Bitcoin investments and uh, and that sort of thing. But um Mark, you mentioned about people in the hospitality and retail sectors, and quite often the people in those sectors are younger people. And I'm going to bring Myron in now as well, because younger people particularly have suffered a higher rate of unemployment than anyone else. If you look at the statistics, although the unemployment rate has been going up slightly incrementally steadily for the younger people, it's completely shot up. And yet, um, from what I understand, there's been a lot more younger people coming onto Interactive Investor and starting to put money away. Are we starting to see young people aware of their vulnerability or trying to save more? Yeah, most certainly. I think it's, it's, you know, what you said, what Mark said, you know, what you said, Serena, it's just a lot of people are more engaged um, with their finances. And, you know, anecdotally, I'm a millennial um, and I have loads of friends um, who... We won't hold that against you, Myron. (laughs) Oh, dear. No. And a lot of my friends, when in the past, when I've told them what I do. They're like, oh, just, just automatically switch off. But now they have time. Uh, you know, a lot of people just contact me saying, oh, Myron, you know, I've heard this thing about investments. Apparently, this is what you talk about. I've been telling you for years that this is what I do. But anyway, <laughs> and they've just, they, they ask for some you know, basic guidance. How do I start investing? You know, I know I should do this, but, you know, where should I start? You know, I'm not too sure about what my risk level is, you know, what, what kind of... Um, Confess that I am, and and it just just goes to show that people are a lot more engaged, and the materials are out there. Yeah, absolutely, Serena. You, have you got more engaged clients than ever before, or are they just ringing you up more often? No, honestly, there's not been that much of a difference. In March, there was a big surge in me contacting clients more than ever because the world went mad. But that really wasn't about their finances. I mean, okay, yes, there was a, a massive drop uh, across the world. But to be honest, I was more bothered that they were safe. Mm. So a lot of my march was spent, you know, setting up online shopping and <laughs> getting <laughs> getting their prescriptions delivered, you know, for clients who have no families and things. The, the finances were part of a discussion, but actually their health was way more of a discussion. Mm. Their worries for their children were way more of a discussion. If anything, I've seen clients want to take more risk in the last few months because they've realized, especially if it was their first big drop, that actually it was nowhere near as bad as I stress test. Mm. And they were like, well, if if that's all it drops in that time, I'm maybe not as nervous as I thought I was over these last few years. Mm. So I would say quite the opposite. I've seen clients much more relaxed about risk because they've realized it's manageable 
Are they more relaxed because they saw how quickly markets rebounded after April, May? No, because even if it had been a year or two, which in the conversations we were talking about could be a year or two before we see any improvement, we didn't have a clue in March how quickly things would happen. But because they knew everything was in place ready for things happening, of course, we didn't know it was going to be a pandemic, but we were preparing with Brexit and lots of other, you know, the, the elections, all sorts of stuff. And of course, my stress testing is quite severe. So then when they saw in reality what happens when there's a big drop, they were like, oh, okay, this actually isn't as as awful as you paint it because I'm actually, I've got the pessimist bias rather than the optimist bias. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the other way around. But obviously, so that was more for clients who were first time big drops. The ones who've been invested for years, quite truthfully, it didn't even hit their radars for most of them. I'm sure Mark and Murren will have seen that. I was amazed at how people just didn't even bat an eyelid. But saying that, I don't think I've checked my pension valuation this year. I'd be lying if I said I had, because there's been other things to think about. So, I mean, yes, of course, we're in an industry where we've not been overly affected um, with job losses and things in, in what we personally all do. But I, I'd be fibbing if I said I'd check my own this year. Mm-hmm. Mark, um, is is that something that perhaps seeing that people are certainly the advised clients are feeling a little bit more sanguine? Maybe they've all got pessimistic advisors who prepared them for the worst, so they've been pleasantly surprised. Is that, uh, is that what you're saying? I, I love the I, I love the idea that there's you know thousands and thousands and thousands of really really pessimistic grumpy people preparing clients for the worst that could possibly happen i love that just this you know 700 when eventually we can do conferences again it'd be 700 people sat there like this well i said it would be rubbish and it was rubbish um i thought it was great um so some things i know from looking at the kind of consolidation up of the uh, individual activities of, of firms like Serena's, uh, a lot of clients, I think, put plans on hold, uh, either for starting things or for spending things in the early days of this. So we saw reductions in inflows, but we also saw reductions in outflows. So people, maybe the cruise was was put off or the new kitchen didn't happen. Oftentimes, things like wedding expenditure or starting further education was put back as well. And those spending patterns are starting to happen again. So outflows are starting to tick up, but it's all natural. Um, In some advisor research we did at the tail end of last year, about 60% of firms said that they found it really, really hard to find new clients. They hadn't necessarily been looking very much. But one firm I remember said to us that once they'd had an initial interview with a client, unless there was a reason not to do business, they would pretty much proceed to doing business with everybody. It's People weren't really shopping around advisors. They would, they would um, um, move to a relationship with those firms. And that just wasn't happening. People were just stopping and saying, this is great. We're definitely going to do something, but I just don't want to do it at the moment. So they weren't kicking off those relationships. And then when you when you look at the flow figures that we're seeing kind of industry level starting to come in for Q4 now, as we record this in early February, then you're starting to see those bounce back up. So that would tend to suggest that the, the bonds are being loosened a little bit and people are coming back. So rampant optimism, maybe not, um, but it all feels like it proceeded in a remarkably orderly fashion. No, advisors are remarkably orderly. I mean, they're... they're, That hasn't been my experience. (laughs) experience. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll have to have the advisors back on this one, Mark, because you know I, 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 we are the voice of financial advisors after all. With clients, <laughs> yes, and other things, I'm just not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> Serena, how as a, an advisor then do you feel? And uh, Mark's made quite an interesting point about business levels. How would you talk about your own firm vulnerability or lack of vulnerability? How, how do you feel positioned? I mean, are you still pessimistic? Oh, I think it makes sense to be pessimistic all the time <laughs> because you never know. <laughs> however, however, I don't take on that many new clients uh, because uh, I have a core holding of ongoing servicing clients. Uh, so I take on a few a year. So I can't really say about levels of new business because I don't really have much of it. Um, but I have had a lot of inquiries over the last year. And most of my inquiries have been people wanting to discuss protection cover, uh, mm. which is something with, with younger clients, certainly, uh, clients' children, clients' grandchildren, desperate to start considering that because they suddenly thought about their own mortality and health. Uh, and that's no bad thing to be considering young. Uh, so I was very happy about that. I've had quite a few calls about people wanting to discuss how will planning and powers of attorney and all of that work. Brilliant. Uh, something I nag about on a daily basis, which is excellent. And the other thing is a lot of people wanting to look at historical pensions where they know they should have looked at things years ago, but they've had a bit of time at home and could start considering. So the inquiries I've had have a bit about investing particularly. It's more been about sorting out their lives. And sorting out their deaths, really. That's and a... sorting out their deaths and looking after loved ones. So what you would really expect. Um, but no, I've, I would say I've had far more new inquiries than normal. Mm. Myron, uh, what about interactive investor? Are you feeling that people are starting to take control over their finances, and younger ones? Is that sort of giving us a sense of, I don't know, maybe people feeling a little bit more educated, a little bit more empowered? That sounds quite positive to me. Yeah, it does. You know, as I said earlier, more young people um, joined us last year and then the year before. It's It's been, a, I suppose, good years in terms of new customers and especially young customers. And it goes for both genders, both men and women um, are seem to be more engaged with their investing. But as I said earlier, you know, our customer base tends to be more buy and hold um, base. And so, you know, they, you know, people are engaged with their investments. Um, and from what we've seen is they're not really, they're not automatically trying to go for investment that's just too, too speculative. So we, we've had investments like Argo blockchain, for example, in our bestsellers list. Um, and that's following the uh, meteoric, meteoric, if I can pronounce it correctly, rise um, in the price, the price of Bitcoin. But, you know, they aren't there you know when you look those kind of starts aren't there when you look over like say a six month plus time horizons um you know you have the likes of fundsmith equity and scottish mortgage you know up in a bestsellers list you know and i suppose these funds have been around for quite some time and have wooed investors so to speak with their return but you know as we say past performance is no indication of future results but it just shows that, you know, a lot of our investors like to invest in funds. They're, they're steady, Eddie, you know, um, slow and steady. Um, what's, what's the saying? I can't remember. Wins the remember race. It. Wins the race. That's it. Slow and steady yeah. wins the race. Um, so it's it's encouraging. It's encouraging because, it, as I said, it's so important to consider your risk profile and how long you have to invest. Mm, absolutely. And it's getting that sort of sense of 
what's suitable for me. Um, even if you haven't got an advisor, just trying to sit down and, uh, I mean, obviously I would always say to people, get a financial advisor because they are worth their weight in gold or gold stocks and shares. But um, seriously, to to sort of find out that your your risk profile, sit down, assess your situation, assess what you really want from your investments, that's, that's absolutely key. Um, I'm going to go to Serena and Mark, because we are out of time and... Uh, I will start getting a nudge from the director as, as to, uh, to to wrap this up. Serena, let's let's talk about what sort of questions of suitability should your clients be be considering? How would you sort of say to them, well, look, you've really got to assess your risk profile here. Are you really as risky as you think you are? Or are you really as cautious as you, you, you think you are? How do you sort of go about um, having that conversation? Oh, okay. So we use software for this particularly with all sorts of graphs and charts and examples. So that that's just a given uh, it's it's a very in-depth conversation, probably one of the most in-depth ones we have, because until you nail risk, everything else is just dressing, really. So, yeah, can they afford to take that much risk? What impact could it have? What if anything changes? Building flexibility, but capacity for loss more than anything, because even if you feel that you're really risky, as Myron said, you know, oh, yeah, I can take loads of risk. But actually, what impact will that have? If the outer echelons of movement happen, what will that have impacting on your life? So actually, once you build in capacity for loss, sometimes that changes up or down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mark, what, what do you think uh, in terms of the suitability questions and suitability software or whatever? Is, is it sort of is it is it working for advisors and their clients? Yeah, I think it probably is. The what happens when the door closes in the living room, you know, and, and an advisor goes through what they go through with a client in terms of financial planning and the kind of checks that Serena's talking about. None of us can relate to that unless we've been through it. But what we do know is that a good financial plan is worth it. It's maybe worth more than an advisor weight in gold. It's worth their weight in Dogecoin or GameStop stocks <laughs> or something like that. A stonk of one form or another. Um, and uh, the plan's the thing, right? The the kit that, that everybody uses, we're all fascinated with, especially if you're a geek like me. But that's like obsessing about the latest in plumbing manufacturing stuff. There are people who obsess about that and it's good that they do because that's how things move on. But you just want the plumber to do your bathroom and get it sorted out. And and so the software that helps a planner do the right thing by the client in that closed door scenario, that's absolutely crucial. I think there are more and more firms realizing that if they can rebalance their world into spending more time worrying about that end of things and a little bit less um, fankling about running this portfolio or that portfolio and whether we've got exactly the right allocation to European small cap or whatever else, then that might not be a bad thing. So, you know, a potential kind of outcome is that we've, we might see a, a slight intensification of this idea that if you're going to run investments, that it's not something you do off the side of your desk as well as doing planning. It's something that you resource fully and really, really go at. And there's nothing stopping firms doing that, by the way. But probably it starts to get a little harder to do that, which means that outsourcing and those kind of conversations move on a little faster. But there's room for firms to do it in whatever way. But it's it's the fulfillment 
of the plan as opposed to the point in itself. And I think everything we've talked about with vulnerability and the reactions that we have as a society, what's been going on, kind of stresses that we need to know what it is we want and then put the solution in place rather than saying, what's the best solution? Because the answer is, who knows, man, because you haven't told me what you're trying to solve. Exactly. That's that's absolutely right. Well, thank you uh, very much, uh, Mark, Serena and Myron for, for taking part in the in the podcast today. Definitely right. We need to get the suitability uh, questions right when talking to clients. Um, it's a great positive that more young people are starting to save. But it's also good for us to think a little bit more pessimistically and be prepared for the worst, because after all, we can only hope for the best. Thank you once again for taking part and thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.